Hello CTSnet friends and welcome to another podcast. My name's Joel Dunning here bringing you all the best and latest in what's great in cardiothoracic surgery. This week we've got uh, transapical beating heart septal myectomy, a fascinating uh, article. We've got machine learning, can it beat our prediction tools? And a really interesting ILCOR document all about uh, donation after out-of-hospital arrests. We've got some fantastic videos for you, Bo Yang on aortic root enlargement, we've got our favourite five thoracic surgery videos and a really interesting article on rapid reperfusion after acute aortic dissection. So don't go away, uh, let's get straight into it. Jan's item that we have selected for you this week is a really interesting article. The title of it is First Inhuman Transapical Beating Heart Septal Myectomy in Patients with Hokum. Uh, so this article is from Tongi University from Wuhan in China uh, and, uh, and actually they really have come up with the most fantastic device to address uh, Hokum. I don't know if you've done a lot of uh, operations from this, but really the most difficult thing is deciding how much to take away. Uh, I really liked a technique where you make an incision uh, in the right ventricle. You can actually feel both sides of the septum to feel when it was getting thinner. But actually, this is far better. So what they do is use a transapical incision, uh, just like you're doing a transapical TAVI, and they have invented this awesome kind of morselator uh, septum eating device. Uh, it looks super cool. We're going to post a little picture for you here or just click on the article. Uh, of note, this article was published in Jack uh, this month. Really big impact uh, publication. And this is an N equals one trial. This is the first inhuman use of this. Uh, so they get this big, huge uh, muscle eating device. And the really cool thing is it's a beating heart. So you can use transesophageal echo to determine how thin you'd like to get uh, that septum. You can also assess the mitral because it's beating. Uh, make sure you don't damage that or destroy it. So it makes a lot of sense, actually. And to me, this probably makes more sense than doing uh, an operation on bypass uh, with uh, with total cardioplegia. So, so what do you think? Think. Have a little click on it. Have a look through those images. Uh, they've done 47 patients, which is really quite impressive. They reported really high success rates. 45 uh, had got uh, good clinical success. Uh, only one mortality, and that wasn't really due to the device. And these were high risk patients. They got rid of the uh, gradients from 86 down to 90 millimeters of mercury. So I could really see this actually being the default way that you fix hokum better than a standard operation. I would maybe even think about choosing this over a stenotomy and bypass just because of the TOE being able to monitor it. So, so you tell me what you think. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. The second article uh, is from the University of Bristol. Uh, Gianni Angelini and Berto Benedetto, they're in the UK, fabulous uh, UK institution. And the title of this uh, published this month in the European Journal is Comparison of Machine Learning Techniques in the Prediction of Mortality Following Cardiac Surgery. Um, I'm sure we've all seen ChatGPT and the massive rise of, of machines uh, that can learn anything. They can drive our cars. They can write articles for us. So 
really what the team here have decided to look at is can they beat Sam Nashev and Euroscore 2, where we just use boring old logistic regression to create a risk scoring system predict our mortality. Um, they've taken our British data set, 227 adult patients that they could look at, 6,258 deaths, which is 2.7% of that data set. And they really looked at a standard Euroscore 2, and then they took the best and the biggest of machine learning algorithms. They went for random forests, they went for neural networks, they went for XGBoost uh, with a weighted support vector machine. I have no idea what this means. To me, to me, it means you put it all in a big black box uh, and it spits out uh, what it's going to predict. Uh, I did do a PhD on uh, on prediction algorithms, so I did spend quite a lot of time 20 years ago trying to work out how these damn black boxes worked. Uh, and, uh, and, and this team, similarly, they took a, a derivation data set and then a, a learning set to validate and looked at how well they did. And while they did find some modest improvements, if they used uh, a machine learning algorithm, actually, I was quite pleased to see that Euroscore 2 stood up really, really well. Uh, and they said, really, for all intents and purposes, it's not a problem to just carry on using Euroscore 2. And the best and the cleverest big brain box machines can't beat it. So I thought that was interesting. Well done, Gianni Angelini and the team at Bristol. Uh, and you can find that in the European Journal, which can just confirm that you can just keep using Euroscore, Euroscore 2. The third uh, article that we have selected, Jason Trezevis uh, has selected this for us, thank you to him, is actually a slightly different article, really interesting, in Circulation, very high impact journal, and it is organ donation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This is a scientific statement from the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, which is the committee that runs resuscitation around the whole world. All the seven resus councils of the world come together under the ILCOR banner to produce world statements. So when they produce world statements, they're pretty important, they're pretty big, and so they're worth looking at. And uh, Laurie Morriston is the first author, but basically it's a who's who in resuscitation uh, who co-authored this brilliant document. And it is probably worth a read, especially you are if you're in uh, transplantation. First of all, they highlight very importantly the need. Uh, they tell us that uh, in one year, 60,000 people in Europe will be on the transplant list. Only 25,000 will get a transplant. They tell us that 18 patients a day a day die on the organ transplant waiting list in Europe. Across the pond in the USA, the as of January 2023, there are 105,800 people on trans on organ waiting list. That's amazing, isn't it? And 10 every 10 minutes, another person is added. So there are huge numbers of people desperate for organs. Uh, only about a third of them are getting it. They document that actually living related donation is around about half of donations these days. But here is the possibilities. There are 4 million out-of-hospital arrests per year uh, worldwide out there. And, um, and in the UK, that you would say maybe is one of the most uh, high ability to get organs. We're a small country. We're developed. We've got preemptive donation now. Uh, and actually only 25% of out-of-hospital arrests will end up donating their organs. And out of that, uh, the standard uh, number of organs is seven. Uh, if you uh, take it from brain death patients and only it's only 1.9 organs from these patients. So there's a huge opportunity here. Um, they're quite interesting because they actually say that out of hospital arrest is an opportunity to save the life of the patient 
and is also the opportunity to save the life of patients on organ donor waiting lists, uh, which I guess is an interesting perspective, because remember, these are the resuscitation councils that are usually only um, dealing with the actual patient themselves who've arrested, but actually they say we should take a wider look. Um, so what have we got at the moment? We've, well, we've got the uh, neurological uh, death uh, donation, but actually now up to 50% of patients in Europe in, in high technology countries have donation after circulatory death. Um, they again further break this down into controlled donation after circulatory death. So they didn't have brainstem death. So they had to come into a, uh, a theatre with a whole team there ready for organ donation. Then they have to stop the circulation for five to seven minutes. And then, then you can go and take the orders. But they do talk a lot about a new category, the uncontrolled circulatory death. So somebody has out of hospital arrest. They come into hospital. We never get the circulation back. So it's to these uncontrolled deaths that, that there is a big opportunity. Um, they talk a lot about the Maastricht classification for donation after circulatory death, actually breaking these down into controlled to uncontrolled. Um, and actually, they propose some new uh, criteria for it, because actually, up till now, if you haven't had a witnessed arrest, you're just not eligible uh, for donation, which they think is completely wrong. They do also go through the organs that are suitable uh, for donation after circulatory death, whether controlled or uncontrolled. And there is a really good section on lung uh, organs uh, and it's a systematic review of 11 studies and actually basically it says they're pretty good the lungs from from circulatory death obviously hearts uh, are not really going to go well on this but lungs is the big opportunity uh, here They've got a really good table, table five, four uh, criteria for uncontrolled circulatory death. They say if the patients are fairly young, maybe under 60, um, obviously any arrest that isn't due to sort of trauma or, or, or uh, dodgy uh, mechanisms. Uh, they'd really like CPR to be less than 15 minutes. They'd like the transfer time to be less than 90 minutes to the hospital. Um, and what they'd like to see is that when the hospital uh, arrest is called in by the pre-hospital teams, then actually uh, organ donation teams are notified at the same time, uh, which is quite a psychological change, isn't it, really, for a lot of hospitals. Um, obviously, they show uh, exclusion criteria and, and uh, things like um, Tra big trauma or hypothermia? Uh, have they got any malignancies? Maybe you've got no idea, or maybe there's a relative that can tell you, do they have infections? Again, pretty difficult if they're in the out-of-hospital uh, setting, but, but obviously you, you try and make some steps to find out uh, while you're doing this. Uh, and then you'd maybe have some organ teams ready. Now, the other really interesting thing in this document uh, is it talks about uh, extracorporeal CPR, putting them on bypass. Uh, and uh, and we've probably all heard about people having um, extracorporeal CPR. It actually works. You have a much higher survival rate if you bring people in uh, for this. But actually, there's also the com com concept of putting someone on by bypass for, for organ preservation. And actually, they talk about how this can be melded, how you can start with eCPR to see if you can get a survivor. But actually, if you don't get uh, a survivor and the heart doesn't start after a certain amount of time, you turn that into organ preservation. So seven minutes off, 
turn it back on, uh, and then you keep the uh, keep the basically ECMO going to preserve the organs, which uh, seems like a really sensible, uh, ethically uh, nightmare, but they do discuss it, discuss it a lot, but actually a very sensible thing to be thinking about. And actually, it makes a lot of sense if you're going to set up eCPR, because they've only got about a 10% uh, patient survival rate. But if they've got a 60-70% organ uh, donation rate, then perhaps this suddenly makes it uh, worthwhile uh, to institute in your hospital. Anyway, I wonder if you've got an eCPR team in your hospital. Uh, certainly in Europe, these are not common, although America, they are quite a lot. But let's maybe think about changing to patient and uh, organ preservation to save life, uh, whether uh, it's that patient or patients on organ registries. Uh, so I hope you think they were interesting. Click on our Jans now to have a look at some of our articles. And if you've got any good articles, uh, just suggest them by sending it to me, jdunning at ctsnet.org, uh, or send it into the office. So now I'd like to hand over to the office to just tell you a few other things that you can find on the CTSnet website today. Take advantage of the features on your profile page to tell the CTSNet community more about yourself. Head to ctsnet.org user to update your background, place of work, and contact information. When you're done, head to the profiles page to stay connected with colleagues and learn more about your fellow CTSNet members. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we've selected three really interesting uh, things on our website for you. Uh, and I think the absolute standout one uh, for me uh, is a brilliant talk by Professor Bo Yang from University of Michigan. Uh, this was at the Australian Thoracic Aortic Symposium this year, and it was an absolutely beautiful talk about aortic root enlargement. Um, the first thing that really hit me were his stunning statistics about how much we reduce uh, the aortic uh, orifice, even with our 21 and 23 millimeter valves. Uh, he's giving us really persuasive statistics that we reduce the orifice by about 50 to 60 percent, which I was horrified at. So he routinely tries to get a 29 millimeter valve in all his patients. Uh, this certainly isn't my practice. And, and none of the practice of anyone in my hospital. But, uh, but actually, he makes such a persuasive argument for this. He provides statistics showing that the better uh, the root orifice compared to preoperatively, then the longer they're going to last. There's going to be laminar flow, no turbulent flow. The biological valve is going to last longer. The patient's going to last longer. They're going to do better. And all you need to do is a root enlargement, which I know for some of us, uh, you know, is quite a scary thing. There isn't done very much. He goes through the options. He goes through the Nix, uh, the Manugian, and even the Cono going straight into the ventricle, uh, which is usually a preserve of just congenital surgeons. And then uh, all is revealed as he uh, then presents the Y technique, which most people now call the Yang technique. Um, and actually shows us how brilliantly and fairly simply you can cut down uh, the commissure between the left and non-coronary cusp, do a little Y in the annulus where it's nice and tough, you're not cutting into the mitral leaflet at all, you're in the safe zones, and then he gets out a nice pericardial patch and makes a nice little pericardial patch in there. He actually does a vertical incision on his aorta, so he then just sort of scallops it into that, and he says you can get a 29 millimeter valve into everybody, uh, which looks pretty impressive really. So great job, really interesting. It's not that long, it's just a little 15 minute video, so if you wanna learn more about that, uh, check out uh, 
this great video uh, by clicking the link below. So I haven't done much on thoracics, you poor thoracic surgeons out there, uh, but uh, don't worry, we're making up right now. We've actually got a link, five videos on surgical innovation in lung cancer. So instead of one thoracic video, you have got five. Uh, so what would you like to see? Well, there's a whole load of different uh, videos from all around the world. The first one is from Latvia, and it's a really nice uniportal VAT sleeve resection of the bronchus intermedius. Uh, it was a carcinoid, which is obviously where we do most of our sleeves. Really interesting and really nice to see a fantastic and cutting edge team from Latvia uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, so check that out. The second one is from our very own pair, Giorgio Soli from University of Bologna and he does a really nice biportal vats right pneumonectomy. Uh, pretty scary for a lot of us, we don't like doing pneumonectomies, so I think there's a real advantage if you can do it by vats. Uh, a really nice video on this uh, and well described by him and his team. The third one is a beautiful one, it's actually my favourite, uh, apologies to the others uh, if they're all watching, but it is my favourite, it's from Brendan Stiles from New York, uh, and it's the surgical man management of oligopersistent and oligo progressive lung cancer and really it is 2023 treatment of a patient this patient had a huge left upper lobe tumor going into the bone possibly metastatic so he had chemo immunotherapy over the next six months it shrunk amazingly uh, and then became resistant it was an adeno so he then took out the left upper lobe tumor no adeno left so only squamous cell tumor removed they then sent it for more uh, immune molecular biology profiling carried on some immune therapy and then six months or so later an R4 lymph node uh, turned up resistant to all the immunotherapy that they're throwing at it. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing these tumours shrinking, doing well for a while, then getting worse. Uh, so then he goes through a right robotic approach and takes out a horrible nasty R4 lymph node. Uh, goes out of hospital really nicely and six months follow up, nothing, no cancer at all from a patient that was stage four originally. So real 2023 care here, uh, minimally invasive surgery, neoadjuvant chemoimmuno, top, top video, well done. Uh, the next one after that uh, is an interesting one from Turkey, um, and uh, and this is bilateral lobectomy, uh, utilising a subxiphoid utility incision. Uh, they do a lobectomy on the right, they do a lobectomy on the left. It's quite an advanced cancer on the left. They have to shave a bit off the PA, all in a single operation. Really, really great technique and lovely to see. Check that one out. And the last one, again by Pierre Giorgio Soli, uh, is a nice middle lobe sleeve resection with a robot for carcinoid tumour from Bologna. So a whole load there for you, a little treat for the thoracic surgeons. I uh, hope you enjoy that. And finally, our final video uh, is back in cardiac surgery. Um, it's actually not a video. Um, it's quite unusual. This, I think, is the first time we've highlighted an article on our podcast. Uh, this is from Australia, from Sanjay Thakur and uh, Robert Tam, Prince Charles Hospital in Australia. And this is the rapid reperfusion technique, a management strategy in acute aortic dissection when somebody's got cerebral malperfusion. So they do a really nice job of highlighting their patient, 64 year old, come in, history of syncope, but they've collapsed, uh, they've got a dense left hemiplegia, they've got a CT scan showing a 
big right-sided middle cerebral artery infarct, but they've got an acute aorta, acute type A dissection. So what are you going to do? Um, these people do really badly if you take them for the dissection repair first, uh, because usually their brain's pickled afterwards. So quite rightly, uh, they say, right, let's fix, let's fix this first. So they take them to the uh, hybrid operating suite. Uh, they reperfuse by stenting uh, the uh, cerebral uh, artery, the carotid artery to the right to, to re restore perfusion. They do an MRI scan to prove reperfusion. They become unstable. So as an, they do a pericardiocentesis and then go straight in to fix the dissection. But with a really good outcome, the patient does really, really well. And, uh, and a really good lesson to us all that we should be still treating them as emergency. We can stent up the carotid arteries before we go and do an eight hour acute aortic dissection operation. And I think this is a really good way to do it. I think we should be doing this if there's uh, GI ischemia, if there's renal ischemia, if there's leg ischemia. Let's, uh, let's punch through the false lumen, let's stent it so that there's blood going to these vital organs in the eight hours you're gonna be doing your repair. Uh, and I think that is the modern way. So well done, that brilliant Australian team for that video. So that's our selections for this week. I hope you've enjoyed them. Just leaves uh, upcoming events. So uh, if you're interested in endoscopic portaxis mitral, there's a dry lab training day on September the 4th and 5th in Maastricht in the Netherlands. So click on the link below if you're interested in that. Um, there is going to be a really interesting structural heart disease uh, conference in Waikato in Hamilton, New Zealand. Uh, this is basically for TAVI and trans valvular mitral tear uh, kind of techniques. Uh, they're going to be doing some live cases by transmission if you want to log in uh, or even watch later. So check out this really interesting Asia-specific symposium uh, down below in New Zealand. And finally, there's the 42nd Annual Cardiothoracic Surgery Symposium. Uh, and this is run by the Cardiothoracic Research and Education Forum. Uh, it's in San Diego uh, in the Mario uh, Hotel and it's September the 13th to September the 16th. It's got a stellar all-star uh, faculty. It's really good. Uh, it's got all sorts of things, cutting-edge presentations. It's got uh, extracorporeal life support, perfusion, everything. You can get your CME points, so check out the link if you're interested. Finally, we have the final two things. Where is Diego, the world raving uh, surgeon, teaching the world to do thoracic surgery? And today he is in Chile. Um, so he's flown over from China to Chile um, and he's done some uniportal robotics, but they don't have an XI robot. So he used, I think, one of the first times, the X robot to successfully do some robotic surgery there and show them that anything is possible. Well done to Diego. And finally, my honorable mention, I think my honourable mention goes to Bo Yang, uh, Professor uh, of Aortic Surgery. Um, and uh, it was such a good presentation he's given in the show notes. And it's not often uh, you have a modern contemporary surgeon uh, giving a new eponymous technique. But the Yang technique, I think, is an absolute banger. It's wonderful. The real genius of it is I think it suddenly makes accessible aortic root enlargement to people that previously probably felt, you know, that is not a technique 
for me. Um, I don't know about you, but I did feel pretty sick cutting into the mitral leaflet uh, or even cutting into the ventricle uh, like the Connos and Manugians and, and Nixes. But actually, his technique makes so much sense. Um, it's, uh, it's staying in the annulus where we all like to be. Um, it's actually, he shows us so nicely where to put the leaflets um, and where to put the annulus. Uh, and he shows it's a really safe technique to not cover uh, the coronaries, the left main stem and the right coronary artery. So I think, A, it's a brand new technique in uh, aortic root enlargement in, in the modern era, which I think is fantastic. Uh, B, um, the guy's got so much humility, he doesn't like to call it the Yang procedure, but everybody else is going to. Uh, and C, I think it's going to make a clinical difference to patients. I think if we do do bigger roots, I think we might see better longevity for our biological valves. So I think it is a real groundbreaking technique. So congratulations to Bo Yang, and I encourage you all to give it a go. Have a look at his videos and tell us what you think about it. So that's all for this week. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and tune in next week uh, for another CTS Net Beat podcast by myself, Joel Dunning.